This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. It's located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, and it was created by our great friend Bob Forrest and his chums, Evan, Jared, and Bob. And they wanted to create a place where addicts are treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience treating addiction, especially patients with co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. They have equine therapy. They have sound bath meditation. They have surfing. They have the sweat lodge. They make sure that if you're kicking, your detox is as comfortable as possible. We all know that is what we look for in a detox. Aloe sounds like an amazing place to get clean. And if you're going to sunny Southern California and you want to get clean and you need to go to rehab, I strongly suggest going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Daddy's Vapor. Attention cigarette smokers. There's a less harmful alternative available to you. According to two studies published by Public Health England and the U.S. National Academies of Sciences and Engineering, they found that vaping poses a small fraction of the risks of smoking, and switching to vapes may have substantial benefits over cigarettes. This is why so many cigarette smokers have made the switch to vaping, and their brand of choice is Twist E Liquids. Twist is an American-owned company that makes its delicious e-liquids in Los Angeles, California. Twist has won several awards for creating mouth-watering flavors, such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. But Twist also produces a line of sweet tobacco flavors. Try Twist e-liquids today and get 30% off your first purchase with code DOPEY30. It's just D-O-P-E-Y. Three zero sold exclusively on daddysvapor.com. That's dopey 30 on daddysvapor.com. Try twist today and make the switch with 30% off. All right, I'm very excited. We have a new ad, a new sponsor. They are called Tiny Footprint Coffee. Tiny Footprint Coffee is the carbon negative, earth positive coffee that makes eco minded coffee simple. When you drink coffee, they plant trees. 
It takes four pounds of carbon to make a pound of coffee. So they plant 54 pounds worth of carbon-sucking trees, which means 50 pounds of good karma in every pound of coffee. Partnered with the Mindo Cloud Forest Foundation in Ecuador, their reforestation efforts along the northwestern Andes help plant native tree species, provide habitat to hundreds of local bird species, reinforce soil conservation techniques, rebuild water tables, and sequester massive amounts of carbon from the air. Plus, this coffee is legitimately tasty. Seriously, I just had some today. It was amazing. It's craft roasted and as nuanced a cup of coffee as you'll ever taste. Go to tinyfootprintcoffee.com and use the code DOPEY10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase. And the more you buy, the more you save, and the bigger your environmental impact. Which sounds great to me. Save the trees, drink some great, great coffee. The code even applies to five-pound bags, bulk purchases, and subscriptions, which are awesome gifts for the eco-minded coffee lover in your life. And it also supports the show. So what is bad about all that stuff? Hit up Tiny Footprint Coffee and take sustainability to the next level, one tasty sip at a time. And just, you know, for a second, I want to tell you guys something. I brought a pound of the Tiny Footprints coffee to my dad's apartment this morning, and my father was legit quelling. And I've never seen anybody legit quell like my father legit quelled this morning over this incredible coffee. Delicious and just a great thing for the earth. Dopey fans, save 10% at tinyfootprintcoffee.com with code DOPEY10. This is some seriously delicious coffee. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Recovery in the Middle Ages. It's a new podcast that has emerged from the deepest, darkest recesses of the Dopey Nation Facebook group. Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and MiddleAgesRecovery.com. That's MiddleAgesRecovery.com. All right. This episode is also brought to you by listeners like you, the fucking Dopey Nation, through the power and prestige of the Dopey Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. This week very well might be the busiest week in the history of Dopey. We had Larry Ratso Sloman on the Dopey Patreon show. We had Steve Gorman on the Dopey bonus episode. We have tonight's episode... And tomorrow night, Saturday, we have the Dopey Patreon Zoom, which is available to $5 and up patrons on the Dopey Nation. There will be a stash word game show with prizes. There will be fun, sharing, fellowship, and more, all on the Dopey Patreon Zoom. Look for next week, a new bonus episode on Dopey Patreon, plus the regular Dopey Patreon episode. So that's a lot of bang for your buck, and most importantly, it helps keep the show 
happy, joyous, and free, and it's one more step to get me away from this deli. Also, there is new dopey merchandise. New hoodies are up today. New crewnecks are up today. There's so much good dopey merchandise. Go to dopeypodcast.com. I believe new beanies and ski hats are coming in this week. The samples are coming in this week. I'm very excited. I also still have Oyve snapbacks, some dopey snapbacks, and some dopey ski hats or beanies. If you want those, you Venmo me. All of the other stuff is at dopeypodcast.com. We made all of it with an amazing company of recovering uh, heroin addicts out of Cincinnati called SRO Prince. Support the show. Fucking go to dopeypodcast.com. I haven't shipped anything in weeks because I'm scared that the mail has failed, but I think the mail is back. So look for shipping tomorrow for Dopey Podcast merch from the old garage. And enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. That's enough with the ads. This is the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave with my good friend, Ray, don't call me Stephen Brown. <laughs> Hello, David. How are you feeling, Ray? I'm good, David. Don't call him Stephen. <laughs> Lots of stuff is going on, and I just want to start the show with important information. What's that? I'm sure, I'm, I don't know why, but nobody's asked me what happened with the cat. What happened with the cat? They assumed Linda and I were the worst pet owners in the world. And you gave the cat back and didn't tell anybody. I killed the cat. You killed and ate it. And we ate it. <laughs> we had cat stew and we called it Onyx. No, when last we talked about the cat, the cat was out of her fucking mind and constantly spraying our bed. And I, I don't think I would have, I think I would have taken the cat back. I think I talked about it on the show, but Nora cried her eyes out and said, if you get, I, she said, I know you guys, what she implied was, I know you guys are the worst pet owners in the history of the world. <laughs> and if, she said, 10-year-old Nora, and if you get rid of this cat, or when, she said, when you get rid of this cat, it will traumatize me. I will never forgive you. She said, I will ne-. No, she didn't say that. She said, she said I know we're going to get rid of this cat, and I will never be the same. Oh, my God. Is basically what she said. And, and Linda, like, poor Linda, every time the cat sprayed anything, we either threw it away or Linda washed it. And sometimes it would be like 11 at night. I was there our- for that. It was bad. And... um you know, sometimes Linda has the most cockamamie ideas, and I'm like, you don't know anything. You have terrible ideas. You're, you think you're an expert at everything, but you're wrong. And this time, she said, I want to get rid of this cat, but we're going to put it on Prozac. We're going to give the cat Prozac. Did she research that and found out that's a cure? I, I assumed that she was just full of shit, and she didn't know about I've it. I've heard about dogs on Prozac. So, um... <laughs> She, she goes to the vet and she tells the vet, we're going to give the cat away if they don't give us Prozac. And the vets don't want cats to be given away, so she, they gave us Prozac, and we gave the cat Prozac, and she never sprayed again. So the, the, but the vet knew that might work. Or was that Linda's idea? I don't know, but that's what happened. I know they give like dogs Prozac when they're like 
howling all the time or something. Well, the cat, the cat for the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit is now... It's cured. She's on Prozac. <laughs> she's, addi- she's addicted to Prozac. Hey, I was afraid that cat was going to spray on me. Well, everyone in the Dopey Nation had something to say. I'd say four out of five responses were, uh, it's a male cat and we need to get it fixed and we don't realize that. Right, it's a male cat that you think is a female. That's what I thought. I figured Linda was wrong, but it's, it turns out it was, it was a female cat that got spayed and this only happens with totally um, traumatized animals. When I was a kid, we had three cats as pets and then suddenly we had like 30 cats as pets. Because they didn't get spayed. They, we, nobody spayed cats in the old days. So all three cats had babies. And then we came home from school one day, and we had three cats again. And my father said he took them to the university, to the medical discovery lab, experimentation lab. <laughs> they <laughs> but, had them tested. But no, to donate them. But he said they all took them home as pets. That's what they told you. That's what they told us. Meanwhile, all the cats are getting electrocuted and like (laughs) teleportation experiments where they're splicing their heads off. We were fine with that. We were like, you know, kids. Amazing. What and and it's like, but it was an acceptable thing. Oh, we just donated the cats to science. And nobody got dogs or cats spayed or neutered. Well, it was before Bob Barker had the, the campaign. So like I said, we're in New York City, and one thing we haven't done in a while is have my father on the show in person. And I know he's lurking in the background. Is he? Dying to be called in. So, Dad, you're going to come in? He's busy. Here he comes. I knew he was ready. (laughs) Here you go. So welcome back to the show, Dad. I live here. I mean, what do you mean welcome? Welcome back to to your house. (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to be back. Yes, I am happy to be back. By the way, we have a lot of funny cat stories from this house, too, which we may not... We should not tell, I don't think. What are the funny cat stories, Dad? About one cat falling 21 floors out the window and uh, not making it. I think the cat... I don't think that's a funny cat story. Not only is it not funny, the cat didn't fall. The cat leaped because our family (laughs) is so unlivable. No, no. Turns turns out that this is a very, very scientific story, if you allow me to tell you the story. There was a very famous scientist, his name is Jared Diamond, who wrote an article for Natural History magazine. And in his article, he wrote that cats that fall from higher than 10 stories have an 85% chance of surviving. The only problem with his article was is that he only, he only got the statistics from the cats that lived. In other words, if they were brought to the vet and they survived, 85% of them lived. He never counted any cats that died. So I sent a letter to Natural History magazine, and I said, we had a cat that fell from 24 floors, and I wrote a poem. There was a, once was a cat named Sam who fell 21 stories slam. Since he died on the spot to the vet went he not, and his death didn't count a damn. In other words, this guy never counted any cats. Who, who, who are you? When, when, since when did you write poems about cats? That was, I was published. That was my big, big scientific publication. What the? Where was I? <laughs> you were Dopey Nation. You wonder where he was. Right? I was in elementary school. You're, you're sitting here composing sonnets to the dead cat. The cat didn't fall. The cat jumped because this was a terrible place to grow up. 
<laughs> Not true. The window was open a little bit. And, it was, and by the way, then we had to buy two more cats, two other cats that Nancy, that's my wife, Nancy and I had to take care of these cats because David and her sister ignored them. I never wanted a cat. I never wanted braces. I never wanted a bar mitzvah. I wanted nothing. And I was forced to be a part of this stupid family. That's not very nice of you. I mean, have a little bit more respect for your family. Anyway, so you wrote a poem. I find that, I can't believe this is the first time I ever heard that story. You, you, don't, you don't know about any of the other stories of the of my career activity. What else, what else you got? The 7-Eleven Solar Eclipse Corporation, the newspaper. You told the 7-Eleven Eclipse story on the show. You told... Did you ever hear the story about my dad? My dad wanted to make it big. So his big plan was to, he thought the Swiss army knife was a big deal. So he was going to import Chinese uh, utility knives. No, it's Swiss army knives, except made in China. They were the crappiest fucking <laughs> knives. And also my dad, he wouldn't stand a chance and you never would want to sell anything. I, I don't know. I thought it was a good idea at the time. He also wrote a children's series called J.J. and the Jelly Beans. Really? Well, it didn't go anywhere either, no. <laughs> well, the poem seemed to have done something. Well, you're coming on the show to read a dopey review, okay? So you want to read, I'm sure you want to read uh, the one about you, like you always do, right? Here, here you go. This is the one. My dad texted me so he could read this one. You texted me. You said, did you see the fantastic review? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't see it. Where is it? Addicted to Dopey, proud member of the Dopey Nation. Thank you for the positivity, humor, and honesty. Dave is good, but his dad is incredible. Hey, stay strong and listen to this podcast, Toodles. Hey, pretty good, huh? <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, 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 hold up. Now, Dad, uh, I know you've been upstate uh, we haven't had you criticize the show in a while, so uh, why don't you take a whack at old Ray over here? Well, I'm not going to criticize. Why, <laughs> yeah. why not? Because you, you can't take the heat. That's why you want to pass it on to poor Ray. Yeah, you, you know? just said, like, growing up in this house was terrible. Yeah, right. Give me a break. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, the Dopey Nation, you know what? Uh, it's hard to put up with David around here, I'll tell you that. Dad, what, what is your criticism of the last few shows? I don't think you've given a criticism in months. Amazingly, I, you know what? I don't think I have any criticisms. I guess that's kind of a weird situation. My dad's normal go-to criticism is really the criticism is that he's not on the show. But he comes up with these other things to... I've never got that impression. And that's, again, it's nonsense. I mean, I mean, he keeps saying things like that, makes up stories about me that are not true, and, and then doesn't give me credit when it's supposed to be my credit. The worst thing I have to say is that um, it was just Thanksgiving, and we didn't, and my dad didn't get to come out for Thanksgiving, which I thought was very sad. Yeah, it was sad. I was very unhappy about not coming out. I, I, and I, I don't know what's going to happen at Christmas time, but I'm going to try and do it. If uh, Maybe with this climate change, it actually could be warm enough to even be outside a little bit. We'll see what happens. That would make it, that would make it better. So you think in the age of COVID, the climate change is good? Climate change is not good because it's happening too fast. But in, if you can be outdoors uh, in December, that would help in terms of not getting the virus, yes. 
We could have been outdoors yesterday for Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. I just made up my mind that I would be eating at home, and I did eat very well, though. I'll tell you that. Yeah, the best thing about COVID is less family at Thanksgiving. Given Thanksgiving. Well, last year, you invited me here for Thanksgiving, and I thought it was you and Alan and Linda and the kids. And I got here, and it was 17 of your relatives. And you and Linda were in the back fighting. So I had Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner with like a bunch of people I didn't know, and it was great. But that was last Thanksgiving. That was good. But you know what's worse than Thanksgiving uh, dinner with family is the Thanksgiving Zoom. Our Thanksgiving Zoom was like the seventh circle of hell. How many people were on it? I think like 16 people. Oh, that's a lot. It was so bad it was like i imagine if there is hell it's the my, our family's thanksgiving zoom for eternity wouldn't you say that was one of the worst places you've ever been no of course not again it, it, no it wasn't it wasn't so terrible if you gave me a choice of public detox or the thanksgiving <laughs> zoom i would take public detox every time how long was your was your Zoom? Twelve minutes. No, <laughs> twelve minutes. Right? How bad could twelve minutes be? You serious? You can almost hold your breath well for two minutes. My family all talk at the same time. I was here. I know that they all. Nobody listens. They all talk at the same time, and then uh, my poor sweet daughter Nora was trying to share something, and nobody let her talk, and she cried and ran away. Yeah, well, well yeah. listen, I, I, I was very unhappy about that. And then afterwards, my dad blamed Nora. <laughs> my dad said, I think Nora might be a little too sensitive. Well, I, I love... Let's hope Nora doesn't listen to this. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I love Nora up to the sky. And I actually called back and spoke with her, and everything was perfectly fine. You did the right thing. And I heard you had a Thanksgiving Zoom as well. Our Zoom, we had four people on it, but because I used the dopey professional zoom it didn't end at 45 minutes and it went on way too long right right well this saturday night we're doing our third dopey patreon zoom with the stash word with prizes fun good times maybe my dad is going to show up this week well we'll see about that what about tell me about these prizes that you don't give out it was what's the story now the t-shirt hey dad what did i just give you I just gave you Austin's prize. Oh, you did? Do I have to give it back? No, Austin has a different size than you, but I just finally gave my father a dopey embroidered hoodie sweatshirt. So what do you you anticipate for this week's installment of the dopey Patreon Zoom? Uh, It's going to be fun. What time does it start? I don't know. 930? 9.30, Saturday night, Eastern Standard Time. That's much better than 10 o'clock. Everybody should come. Dopey Patreon, Zoom, and Stashword, and even my father might make an appearance. So I just have to look up how do you do that? I mean, there must, oh, there's a password, and I, you'll figure it's it out. It's very easy. All right, okay. I'll okay. send you an invitation. Okay, I'll figure it out. That's Zoom, Saturday night? I'm going to send you an invitation. Just click on it. People will come just to see my father. Oh, really? Well, all right. I'm not promising anything, okay? Please, everybody. I'm not going to promise. All right, well, that was a really great appearance, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> he's shaking his head no as he's saying it's a really great appearance. Listen, I'm doing my best. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Toodles for Chris, and be safe, everybody. Thank you. And um, we have a very special guest on the show today. Are you excited? Oh, yeah. You like this one. I loved it, yeah. It is uh, a woman. 
it's, it's a long interview, and she held my interest through the whole interview. Well, she's a, a rock and roll legend. She's a, a grunge legend, a 90s legend. I like that she talked about flannel. Flannel legend. Yeah. And, and, you know, she came across as like a really warm, nice, cool person. She was awesome. And uh, her name is Patty Schemmel. She was the drummer in the, uh, the, the, the band Hole. At their height. At their height. And here she is, Patty Schemmel. Don't call her Schemmel. All right, so this is a very, very exciting day in the history of Dopey. We have Patty Schimmel of Hole, the author of Hit So Hard, uh, ridiculous drummer, ridiculous drug addict in recovery. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Great to be here. It's fucked up to call you a ridiculous drug addict, but I mean, I'm a ridiculous drug addict too, so. Yeah, yeah, I worked hard at it. And... um I, just to be transparent, I haven't made so many mistakes when recording the show in a long time. So Dopey Nation, bear with me. Poor Patty had to re- talk to me for five minutes and I didn't have the right thing plugged in. So she is a good sport and a kind-hearted woman and helping me out here. Um, and we just, we just started talking about the fact that she was raised by two alcoholics in recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I grew up hearing you know alcohol alcoholics in the kitchen at my house you know my parents would have friends over and they would drink coffee and smoke tons of cigarettes and um you know my parents would do late night you know they get a phone call and do um you know go on and do a 12 step they called it you know it's going on a 12 step so um i mean the language and the um the steps were sort of my, our family's guide to you know to life in a way but also, we weren't like it wasn't blissful at all. It wasn't like, oh, my dad realized he made a mistake. And so he's going to come and apologize. You know, it wasn't like because I, I aspire we aspire that to that kind of, you know, as alcoholics and we work in recovery and we do the steps. It's never like so, you know, I was finding always finding the, my, the fault with them. You know, like they were clean. They were sober people, who, but they were, you know. Not the greatest. You were, you were, you were, you were recognized. You're taking their inventory, and they didn't have a great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't have a great yeah. tenth step. I know. I know. Dad never had a sponsor. You know. Ah. I, but if if it just if the alcoholic in me is like wants to find all the sh- negative shit, and you know, bring you know, there's AA is not the only way. You know, but you know that's what I would say, um, and. Uh, yeah, so they, but they never, you know, there was never alcohol in the house. And, um, and so, you know, there, I didn't, ha- I'm grateful I never had to see them. You know, I wasn't, they weren't actively, you know, drunk. I didn't have to, uh, um, see that. And, you know, not such a bad childhood, but it's all in the book. It's all in the book. But the question oh. is, what happened the first time they saw you intoxicated or altered? Um, yeah, I think maybe, I don't know, the first time my dad knew it was, I came home uh, from some show in Seattle, and I'd taken, I think, like I mixed MDA or Molly, you know, it's called Molly, <laughs> MDMA, whatever, and alcohol, not a good mix, you know, first alcohol is my first, the first thing I'm going to do is drink alcohol, 
and then not, and then this time I mixed because I'm trying it all, and somehow um, that really fucked up my drunk, you know. And I got home, and I get, I was in a blackout, and I was like, I opened my closet door in a blackout in my bedroom, and like got into my closet, like that's where I slept. I don't know. All of a sudden, the door opens, and this is where I wake up, you know. And my dad's like, "What are you doing?" You know. And then he knew, you know. Oh, what the, you know. Okay, so then the that's it you're grounded and you know you're gonna start doing your chores around the house <laughs> like yeah, I don't, it's like some kind of punishment but i think that was the first time and then there was the talk uh so you're drinking you know and blah, that and then it begins and um but from listening to them talk you, i really kind of learned how to what to say when to say it and how to you know sort of manipulate um and to, so i could preserve uh that thing that my wanting to drink and use you know and also rehab was a great way to learn a few skills that way so totally it's like it's like <laughs> yeah. you were a masterful addict you had all the language down so you could yeah. use like it was like rope doping aa basically yeah yeah which, yeah which is pretty crazy um i have two daughters you know my older daughter is 10 and um, and I look for little addict things in her, like little manipulations and little weird I, things she might do. Both of your parents were in recovery. Um, when did it? I mean, like obviously he's like, oh, you're drinking, but is he like you're going to be an alcoholic? Is it like that? Um, no, he didn't say anything like that. But he said um, because you know he. I don't know. They were sort of hands off a little bit. My mom a little bit more on, but my dad was a little bit not so much because that my parents were divorced at the time, and and he was doing his thing. Um, he and I, I started smoking cigarettes at twelve, wow. you know, with him, and that was kind of his drug of choice was nicotine. So we'd go grocery shopping and walk around, and I'd smoke and he'd smoke in the grocery store, you know, like it was. Those he, are the days. Yeah. And I think he knew that there was nothing, you know, he grounded me and stuff, but he, you know, I think he kind of knew that he just had a little extra, uh, sort of his eyes on me, you know, like, who are you going out with? What are you doing? You know, going to a punk rock show, you know, um, so, but I think he kind of knew like he can't, uh, I mean, it's going to happen eventually to sort of explore that. So as you drank and used more and more, did it occur to you that you were like your parents? Uh, I, I didn't really, yes, I didn't want to be, but you know, in my mind I thought, Oh, they just don't know how to do it. You know, they, right. <laughs> I got you know, I can, and it's different. They're like, I, I just thought, you know, like I had this image when I hear their stories about them in Brooklyn back in the day, you know, my mom, you're drinking straight out of, a, you know, a, you know, like you see in the old movies, like the, the classic, uh, come back little she, but remember that movie? Yes. I don't know. Or uh, the days of wine and roses. It was like that. That's, that's what plays in my mind. I see my mother drinking. Um, but, uh, I thought, you know, well, I, I can, I'm, you know, I'm not like you. It's different. So, 
that was and my sister too like she was full on and so uh, she she saw me like the first time we got drunk together was the last day of school when i was in seventh grade or something and she and her boyfriend had a fifth of bacardi 151 and um and they're like stoner rocker people you know like her boyfriend (laughs) so uh she mixed a drink for me and my brother and i got drunk and she was like whoa and from that moment on it was like started this thing of patty doesn't know how to handle so don't get patty because you know she gets out of control and she can't function and you know like pull yourself you know you've got to um so that was the thing and it was always like fuck you to my sister you know i can handle um and then you know that was kind of the thing all along was like if people find out then they're gonna you know i've got to function i've got to be able to function because i this is the only, the only way I knew how to like operate in the world and to be a part of the world was to be under the influence. And so I had to fight for that, you know, like it, I felt like, oh, okay, now I can be a uh, part of this world. If I'm, if I have something, you know, that helps. Well, it's like a double edged sword because you need it to be a part of the world. And then yeah. if you're too fucked up, you don't get to have it. So you don't get to yeah. be a part of the world. So both ways, yeah. it, it cuts both ways on that. Um, yeah. And it must have been amazing to be, I mean, I grew up in New York City and I, there wasn't, I mean, I guess hip hop was happening around the time when I came yeah. up in New York City, but like, I wasn't going to be a part of it. Like as much as I dreamed of being a part of it, you came up in like, and I know how many times do you have to talk about being from Seattle in the nineties, but it, what an amazing thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I talk about that in the book too. It wasn't like, you know, when I was a kid and you know, I lived way out in the, the suburbs, like where I lived was like nowhere land. And, um, you know, there, there was no, there was no punk rock. I couldn't, you know, we weren't in a city. Um, and so I looked for it everywhere. You know, like the first time I, you know, saw something was maybe, um, you know, on Saturday Night Live when uh, David Bowie came on and like that iconic moment and like all these like underground TV shows or um, Canadian radio, because I could tune in at night and hear, all these new bands that I never had heard before. So that was, I was seeking that cause it was different and it just spoke to me, you know? Um, so, uh, and it, nobody in it, Seattle was all like, you know, rush at the Coliseum, which, okay. I saw them three times, but <laughs> in Van Halen, you know, I liked all that, but still it was not nobody. You oh, Punk rock was never going to be like something you made a living doing, you know, but that's, what I wanted to do, it spoke to me. And then, um, you know, and nobody, like, I was always like, well, I want to be a drummer in a rock band, but I can't, like, if I'm, when I grow up, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to live in Seattle. That's not where rock bands are. So who never thought that anything would happen in Seattle ever. Um, it was a real crazy lightning striking moment. Like, but it's also just talent and, and, and style and like, I listened, Eddie Vedder was just on Howard Stern and, and he compared it to like Laurel Canyon in 1966 or something. And when you hear the stories, it, I mean, in, in your book, I mean, it's like you're sharing gear with all these guys. You, you knew all these guys um, yeah. and, you're, and you're playing shows with all these guys really young. And it, it must have been just so cool. Uh, how enmeshed were drugs in the beginning? Yeah, um. Well, I started when I started playing drums in um, 
you know, my punk rock bands, we would go into the city um, to into Seattle to play shows. And um, that's how, you know, just by going out and playing shows and going to watch out and being part of that scene, um, that's how I kind of got into other bands and got to meet every, you know, and like that was our community. Um, I would definitely, I would, dr- I was always drunk. I definitely got kicked out of a lot of bands for being drunk. You cannot use any substances as a drummer because you're the one you're like you know like you're the one that keeps it together so um i decided to mix cocaine with alcohol so then i could like keep it up you know i knew that because um i started playing when i hadn't ever done drugs i knew what my body was capable of and then when i had one beer i couldn't play like i had so um, I had to offset that, you know, with some other, and then becomes the chemistry experiment. And that right off the bat was day one of trying to maintain. And everybody was drunk. Like maybe if you were a guitar player, it seemed like the guitar players could drink a lot more <laughs> and do a lot more drunk than the drummers did. But, um, but yeah, right away. And so if I'm drunk and I'll, I'm going to try anything, I really, so then anything that came my way, I was going to, you know, start, so there was the cocaine and there was like, you know, any kind of pills, but I hated marijuana, never liked it. Cause it didn't blend. It didn't mix well with, um, alcohol. So right. I didn't, I didn't try, um, heroin till, um, I don't know, like 89 or something, 90, um, at a show. Um, and it was, um, it was okay. It wasn't like a big deal. I don't know why, like that first time. What was the and first then, time? Tell us the story. Uh, um, it's not even like, well, I was, I met up with a friend at, um, this girl who was singing in my band, one of my bands and, um, we were going to a show and my other friend, Angela came over and she's like, I have some dope. Do you want to try it? And I was like, yeah. Um, so she and I went to the bathroom at my friend Helen's apartment and, shot up and I was like I felt this sort of warmth but it was I don't know and then I threw up and then I was like oh it's okay you know it wasn't like earth shattering or anything at at that and then um so that was it it wasn't like uh, you know I wish there was like no I I had the exact same thing happen to me like the first time I did dope I was I got really fucked up and I threw up a lot and the next morning I was yeah. like I don't need to do that that was my yeah. reaction I was like I don't care about this and and it yeah, took we, me years later to, to come back to it you know yeah I wanted to go in a different direction I probably, like I would have loved to have done cocaine or meth that night you know and then went to the show you know <clears throat> but it was a different thing <laughs> um, but then you know on and on like it was just a series of experiment lots of cocaine and alcohol and um, that was like kind of my and speed, you know. You needed um, the propulsion. You love drinking, yeah. So you were like, you know, I I, yeah, I always thought, upset. yeah. So you needed as the drummer, you needed that propulsion. You could be right down or in a haze or in a funk, uh-huh. and then you need something to fucking right the ship, right? Right. Yeah, and then and then it's that's not working, you know. So then I make a, a, a I a, the decision to I'm not going to drink before I play. You know, and then I'm going to play the show. Then I'm going to drink, and um, 
that never, you know, I could never stick to that because there we are in the bar. And I'm like, ah, I'm fine. Once you make that one, oh, I will just have one. You never can have one. It's such a cliche, but it's true. So when, when the, when, of course, I mean, that's, I mean, that's why we're here because <laughs> you can never <laughs> just have one. Yeah, you know, that's the thing about like people that say, you know, like, it, I remember thinking that hearing people say, well, I wish I could just drink normally. But then I was like, who wants to? So I want to drink normally. Like, that's not the thing. Well, yeah. I mean, if I, there is no, if for me, it's like, even with smoking, I like with smoking cigarettes, I can't smoke a cigarette because I literally have the feeling that I don't want to take it out of my mouth then, or that I need to keep smoking them all day. And I can't have a cigarette. There isn't a cigarette. There's only only smoking. There isn't a cigarette. Yeah. And, and, right. You know, yeah. and I'm the same way with, with, with using, you know. Um, when did it happen? You had met Nirvana at that point and, and you were in a band before Hole. Like, uh, yeah. talk about the great ascension. Yeah. Um, I was uh, living in, in Seattle with my girlfriend and, and um, <clears throat> we... And me and Larry, my brother, had a band called Sybil, and um, we were like all we were really good friends with the guys in Mud Honey, and like that's like I would go see them play a lot, like Dan Peters, and what um, I'd go and watch, you know, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, watch them play, and, and just be inspired by them, you know, they're um, amazing drummers, and um, and so then, you know, we'd play shows with like opening for Nirvana or opening for or or go to like I remember going to a show in Tacoma at this theater uh, called Community World. And it was in 1988. And, um, you know, this band comes on and it's early, you know, a version of Nirvana. And it's, you know, like Kurt, Chris and then some guy with a mustache, you know, like their first drummer or something. And they did Creedence Clearwater songs and you know, and then my band plays. And and so nobody knew, you know, like, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, we're, it's, here comes the magic or anything, but it was like, we were all respectful. And like, I, when I heard Nirvana, I was like, when Kurt got, you know, Chad and then, then, you know, they're, they started playing shows. I was like, yeah, you, you know, like, I don't want to be in a band like that. That's cool. So, um, yeah, so me and you know we played a lot of shows in um, in Sybil, me and Larry, and that's when like things started to kind of really take off in like 1990, 91, and um, so many, you know, there was like so many. Uh, like we'd go to see our friends play shows and then we'd all go back to the same house and get drunk and do drugs and listen to you know the fluid or put on a Black Sabbath or Nirvana. And then these were just friends' records. No one knew that, if you told me then, and I've said this before, that you were going to hear Nirvana on the radio, it would have been hysterically funny and ridiculous. No way. I mean, because that's, that's a whole, that's them. That's a different thing, the, the radio. And this is our private thing. This is like sub. Well, you know, as somebody as somebody that was in some terrible bands, you know what I mean? Like I knew that you were never going to hear my band on the radio. Like that was that was obvious to me, but still when I would listen to the rehearsals in my car, I was like this is the greatest thing in the world yeah. and it was magic and it meant 
everything. And you could say to yourself, well, if this was a little bit different here and mm-hmm. I could sing a little bit better there and, you know, like whatever, then it could be something. But you, yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing you describe is like people are tweaking their sound. People are getting mm-hmm. better. Like when they played yeah. with the dude with the mustache playing Creedence songs, you're like, what yeah. the fuck? But as, as it got better, you could sense something special you know, like right. Soundgarden's getting better, Mudhoney's getting better, yeah. and like you're in the midst of it all. And it's like when you, when I dis, when I say to you, Eddie Vedder said that being in Seattle in the '90s was like 1966 in Laurel Canyon. Does that make you laugh, or do you think that's accurate? I under, I, I mean, I understand what he's saying. You know, I'm sure. I don't know. I I don't know if the um, you know, like it. I don't know, was it was that Roger McGuinn part of that? It was scene? like Zappa, was, Zappa, Crosby, yeah, yeah, Stills, yeah. and Nash and right. all that. Yeah, so are they, do they, I think they knew that they were, like they were in L.A. with a record deal, right? Basically, and pros. yeah. So, I don't know. Like, we, it's a different thing, I think. I mean, every, like, I'm, I, like Soundgarden got a record deal and stuff, and it was, like, cool, but, like, I don't know. And then there was that whole idea of they're showing out, but... Well, I'll take it back a little bit. Like in my bands, I would have these small goals. Like I want my band to play at the Vogue Tavern. Right. You know, that was the big thing. Like I want to, or I, I want to play a sub pop Sunday at a small, you know, like these were little goals. And then, you know, I want to be listed in the rocket newspaper. And then, and then you are, and then you're like, Oh shit. You know, and then you play your show at the Vogue. Then you do your, you know, oh, I want a sub pop single. And then you get it. And then it's like your goals just keep on getting bigger. And for me, it was like just in my world, my Seattle world, you know. And then, um, yeah, Soundgarden got signed and it was so, I mean, that was cool. I mean, it was weird because there's that punk, but also um, sort of metal vibe that mixed together in the sound. And, you know, it was kind of cool how it just sort of like happened and I mean, there are reasons why, you know, people were finals and, you know, it was because we all worked at the lumber mill or logging or, you know, if there's all these, you know, you could break it down and get all, you know, you know, break down the whole community and, you know, people were children of Boeing employees and they, you know, um, Sure, and if you ethnomusicologically, yeah. you could be like, well, they got metal from here, and they got punk from here, right. yeah. and they got yeah. you know the MC5 from here, and they right. put it together, and it became you know I how when as it grew, were you experience were you like descending into addiction then? Did you or yeah. was it was it good? Like what where were you at with your addiction yeah. as no, the tr- bands got I mean, better? Trouble since day one, always like such a you know mess, always and always you know drunk at rehearsals for every band like, um and what was you know there were other people in my bands like we are all you know like you know my friends drank and used drugs too you know but and but I was the one that like could not keep it together I went hard than more than them I guess and so they were like fuck we can't. Your liability, and you're like, you know, we have a show at the Vogue. We don't want to fuck it up, Patty, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so I, I would, you know, really try hard. I think I, I could have been such a better drummer. I think if I would have just fucking, you know, tried harder and made it. But um, I didn't, you know. But it is what it is. I guess I, you know, I, I, 
Um, also, um, there was something I was going to tell you about the, um, yeah, like it wasn't because, you know, when people are like, well, Patty gone in a hole and became a junkie. And it's like, no, Patty was a junkie way before hole, you know, that I was a drunk and an alcoholic before I ever, um, got into my band, which was, you know, you know, had some drug addiction issues in my scene. You know, I, that was my deal. I was already there. Um, when would you say and, you became a junkie then? Um, I became a junkie pretty much about, I don't know, maybe a, almost like a year after or maybe half, you know, like after I got into hole, it was like um, I, we'd done a tour with the Lemonheads down the West Coast and um, what was it then? Or I just remember coming home from a, a short little tour and seeing my brother, we shared an apartment and my brother was, um, his best friend Simon was staying there and kind of subletting my room and my brother came to the our show at the Moore Theater and he was fucking high. And I was like, and he was not drinking a beer. And I was like, wait a minute. What's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here? And, uh, you know, and then I went over to his, our, you know, place after and Larry was like, well, me and Simon are doing some heroin. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, can I, what, you know? And, um, so I did. And then it was on, you know, um, because, you know, Larry was doing it. And then I was like, yeah, okay. I, I didn't do it. Like, it wasn't like Kurt or Courtney was like, hey, do heroin with us. You know, never. We never, it was always, I did it when I was with doing my thing. You know, they had their own thing. Um, and uh, pretty soon it just, you know, there was so much going on. Um, and it, it got bad fast. You know, just so. It, I want to yeah. ask you something. I want to interrupt you for a second, and I apologize for interrupting. Mm-hmm. It's one of my worst. No, no, no. It's one of my worst habits is interrupting. No, no, please. Um, so, like, you're very famous for being this very hardcore drug addict. You're also very famous for being this really hard hitting drummer. And uh, Kurt loved your drumming, which is why he had suggest suggested you to Courtney when she was replacing her drummer in the first place. Right? That's how it mm-hmm. happened. He was like, yeah. I know somebody who would, I, I, from what I understand, he possibly wanted you to be in Nirvana. And she was like, no, I want her in my band. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's sort of like mythical. Is that bullshit funny, or is that real? Yeah, it, it, Courtney, like making my stories. Yeah. I mean, we were friends. Kurt and I were friends. And, and, and uh, you know, there might have been, you know, something. Everybody wanted to be, there were so many drummers that wanted to be in Nirvana, you know. Um but yeah, he did say, get Patty to be in your band. And um, so my friend Dylan Carlson called and said, hey, you know, get a hold of Kurt. And I was in San Francisco at the time. I did a geographic from Seattle to San Francisco, my girlfriend, and then tried to stay sober you know, and couldn't do it. It was going bad quick. And then I don't know if it was San Francisco. I started doing speed and that. <laughs> so then uh, anyway, just. Um, so when that happened, I kind of like had to like straighten up and like get some shit together. And so then, you know, uh, see, and I remember during my, when I went down to LA for my sort of audition, I'm, I have quote air and quotes on that. Um, Courtney, like when she 
came, like we played, and then she's like, so um, do you do drugs? What do you do? Like first off, and I was like, oh, yeah, I do speed or whatever. She's And like, that was one of the first questions, you know. What drugs what do you do? Band? Yeah, what are your favorite bands? What drugs do you do? Who did you say your favorite bands were? Oh, um, at the time, I was like really into, I liked Mud Honey, but I also, um, God, then, um, well, My Bloody Valentine was a big deal. I loved that. And um, yes. So you're like, I like Mud Honey and My Bloody Valentine, and I like drinking and speed. And she's like, all right, check. Did you think? Yeah, do you think she it. would be scared if you said I love heroin? Do you think she would have been like, "Oh, this could be a problem," or no? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because I don't know. It, because it, it, um, I don't think she. This is me. This is me. Uh, sort of. A, I'm going to assume this. Okay. She didn't want to be in a band like with a junkie who would want to. You know. I mean, she. I'm. I'm. You know, drummer can't be fucked up. Plus, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lead with that. Trying to get into this band, I'm not gonna say that. (laughs) But um, also, she hated that part of herself. You know, the the addict part. So, um, so yeah, she didn't want to hang out with somebody. You know, she that's a junkie. You know, unless they were strictly a using person who was going to hang out and do drugs. One of my favorite things about the book is when you talk about how you and Courtney communicated about music and what a student she was of rock and roll and what a student she probably was of heroin addict rock and roll people where she was like, Mm -hmm. I can't have my drummer be a junkie because that could be a liability, but I can handle it kind of the same way you were with your parents. They didn't know how to do it. And she's like, well, maybe this person doesn't know how to do it, but I can. We all kind of do that, I think. Yeah, but I don't think she would ever like outwardly like admit that. Like, um, yeah, it's like I never saw her then literally doing drugs. Never saw her do it. Um, but uh, yeah, there was all, it was also, you know, there was a lot of, um, to be in the band, there's a lot of, um, you had to be, you know, you had to excuse a lot of things like nodding out during rehearsal or, you know, not showing up and, you know, that kind of stuff. And like, it's like, in a, it's weird, like almost like lead singers get a little bit more of a free pass and, um, you know, <laughs> So, um, yeah, like everybody waits for six hours for Axel to show up for a <laughs> can't believe I dragged them into this, but yeah, it's fair. It's fair. <laughs> but, but also Courtney Love, though, she I mean, she commanded record company interest. She commanded media interest. She was going to, like, make sure that you guys made money and that, you know what I mean? Like the band was great yeah. and the songs were great, but her name was like. I want to buy that. You know what I mean? She was a commodity in her yeah. persona or right. whatever. So right, exactly. so let's get back to your at the Lemonheads and you're, yeah. you're with your brother. And were you thinking, well, I'm in this junkie band anyway, so maybe it's time I picked up the mantle or was you were just like, uh, fuck it. My brother's yeah, getting high. Like, absolutely not. Did not have any thought about, well, I better not or I should. You know, it was um, and Eric, who is our guitar player in whole, he was like the one that was like having to deal with all this shit, you know, and seeing right away from day one, 
you know, he comes to my over to my house in Seattle when we all came back to Seattle to begin rehearsals. And I had to learn all these songs going back to that day. He comes over. It's like one in the afternoon. And I'm like, hey, want a beer? You know, and he's like, what? I don't want to, you know, like. I don't even real. I didn't even realize that he's not supposed to drink a Schmidt beer at one right. after. Like, it, and he was like, looked at me, and I was like, oh, like, Uh-oh. and all of a sudden figured it out. Um, oh, it's not that. It's like this is the job too, you know. And so he's trying to keep it all together. So then begins the. I got to hide. No, you no one's gonna. I don't want anybody to know what's. And he right away was like, look, you know. We st- he and I start really digging into learning the whole catalog and stuff, and I'm fucking hungover every day, you know, coming in and like, ugh. And so he's gone to some of those shows, too, with me at night, and then he knows what's going on, and he's like, yeah, you're not, you're, like, kind of shabby. You know, like, really laid into me, and I was, I was like, fuck you, policeman. What? Oh, you're, well, you know, really cool guy, you know. But I, I get it, you know, and... Um, but it really created this big rift and resentment. I see that there's always that kind of stuff in dance. So it was, it was, uh, it was on about hiding. So it was like once I started doing heroin, I was like, Ugh, uh, well, Eric can't know number one, and Kristen, who was in, you know, she, um, she started, you know, kind of dabbling here and there too. So, um, but you weren't using it with we, her. We didn't at the beginning but then we did and um she would come over to my place and like get high with my brother and um so yeah she she went hard too you know um but we were the same so when when she died i thought what why didn't i you know i why didn't what what's the difference i i did i i used as hard as she did i do the same thing she did and um, that was hard because I came home from my first rehab. After Kurt died, I was like, Oof, I got to get, you know, went to my first fucking rehab and came home after 21 days. And it was a non-medical um, rehab. And then um, she calls me, I get home. She calls me and she says, hey, you want to come over? You, you know, you have a couple things over here. And I was like, mm, no. Because I knew if I did, we'd get high or I'd want to. So um, then the following week, you know, she she OD'd. And it was one of those situations where she got clean and then she came back to Seattle to pack her stuff. And, and you know, and she was going to have one. Yeah, and it was one last, you know. Well. One, and I, yeah, so. No, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Uh, and I started uh i got one of those get like i started a job you know at in i got out of rehab and i started painting houses with this great woman i met in rehab her name was gail she lived on bainbridge island and you know when i I took a ferry out there and she's fucking hysterically funny like my people like you're from my planet we just you know and so i'd go out to bainbridge island and paint houses every day and like have this sort of day job and go to meetings and trying to do this and then uh, one day I got a call when I was out there from my girlfriend and she was like, you need to come home, um, Kristen O'Deed, you know. And then, Which is just, there. it's just the worst. And, um, and you know, that reminds me, did you ever read uh, the Levon Helm book? Uh, the drummer from the band, he wrote a book called, uh, yeah, I know the, 
Wheels on Fire, he wrote a book, and he was a junkie drummer also. And he yeah. left, I mean, he had a hit record. He was, you know, on Dylan's hit record, and he left yeah. the Dylan tour to go work on an oil rig. So I see this parallel between these incredibly high-end junkie drummers who are like, fuck it, I'm not going to play in the biggest band in the world. I'm going to go paint houses or I'm going to work on an yeah. oil rig. You know, it's yeah. like, it's very interesting to me. But yeah. when you guys are, are coming up and before Kurt died, like the scene was was ripe with, with heroin, right? Like like you, yeah. you described. Well, you know, there was sort of um, heads up, you know, like Andrew Wood died years you know, a few years before that. And then my friend, Stephanie Sargent, who was in seven year bitch, she OD'd. And then it just, you know, it was starting to go down like <laughs> different things here and there. And, um, and, and that was like a new, that was an introduction to life and death. Like you do this and you're going to die. And that was, you know, I thought about it for a second, like, Oh, I, I took, I took pause, but then I was like, fuck it. Not, not again. It was like, well, not me. That's not gonna happen. I, I'm not. I'm gonna do it. There's a right way to do it, <laughs> and I'm gonna do it, and and I'm gonna make it work for me. I was always trying to make it work, work and function, you know. And when I did, um, it, you know, this second time around, when I did hair, when I shot up with my brother, that was the moment where I was like, oh, okay, you know, now I feel that, you know, I would say it was like wings and a blanket and my mama and all this stuff. And I felt, Oh, okay. Now this is how everyone else feels now. Right. And, um, that there was, I met, this is my life. Here it is. I, you know, met the thing that's gonna, I've been searching now I've met it and here it is. And I'm going to do everything I can to, you know, make it work and continue doing it. And what was the thing that brought you to rehab that time? Like before Bainbridge Island, like why? Like um, what, what, what Kurt, it was Kurt. It was when Kurt OD'd, I, or no, when Kurt killed himself, I can't believe it. Um, when Kurt killed himself, it was like, it made it kind of like. Um, Party's over kind of thing. Yeah, it was like this big wake up call. And that sounds so like, it doesn't give it enough. But I, there was a moment before, he died where I went, I started to, I went over to our dealer's place and actually it was his dealer too. And, um, I walked in and she was in the, in the other room getting him sorted and he was in, sitting on the couch and I was like, Hey, you know, and he didn't know I was using it. And he was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm just, you know, going to get some dope. And he's like, Hey, don't don't start. Don't do this. It's like it's it's not good, Patty. You know, and uh, and I was like, ah, I'm okay. You know, and he was like, it's just sort of a warning, but not like an asshole about it. And um, so Caitlin sets got, gets him sorted, and then um, I was like, just a, you know, beginning. So I didn't know how to uh, shoot up like do myself. So. I was like, hey, can you help me with this? And, you know, he was like, ah. Uh-uh. And I was like, can you just, you know, and then so he did. And um, he was just like, you know, don't don't keep doing this. Just stick to what you do. And, um, and then we never talked about it again after that, you know. Um, but uh, when he killed himself, I think 
my thoughts on it is that he, you know, he made that he made that decision consciously. Like he doesn't he didn't want to be sober. He didn't want to be clean, and um, I couldn't imagine being alive and you know not being clean. Maybe I'm assuming. So he chose that. That was his choice. I'm gonna kill myself rather than. You know, do this again and um, again and again or whatever, right. this misery. Yeah. Because he didn't, yeah, but life. he didn't know that you could get to the other side of it. I mean, like you and I are sitting exactly. here on opposite ends of the country, very nestled in our recovery with possibility in front of us on a daily basis. And Kurt didn't see that it was that it was possible, which is very sad. Yeah. I mean, it became uh, like he didn't have a problem with money. He could, you know, he had enough money that wasn't going to stop him. Um, you know, there was that horrible intervention, you know, so there's that. And that, uh, you know, it, it, people sitting at a table almost feeling like maybe he felt like, you know, of course, he's a commodity. It's like it's a band. And when you've got that next record, you got us tour. So there's that. And then so it, he starts to run, you know, that whole time when he was like on the run somewhere um, and hide. And um, it, now it's out. Everybody knows. And. He he was just trapped, I feel like. And, you know, he, he and Courtney started doing that together in the beginning. And they were like, it's us together against everything. And then she's, you know, I think, she, you know, she wanted to get clean. You know, she, I don't think, you know, she, she didn't want to live like that. I don't know what she wanted to do, but she didn't want to live like that. And so he's like, maybe he felt betrayed. You know, like when you're in it with your partner and they're like, hey, let's, and you're like, What? No fucking way. Right. You know, now I'm alone in this. So fuck you. And um, and she didn't want him to die. And then, you know, there's all these sort of, you know, there were like a few like red flags along the way with the whole moment in Rome where he took all the pills. And, uh, he, and he, on that tour, I, he wasn't happy. And like, I think you like chemically in your brain, you can't be, you know, you're trying like he's trying to like it's a physical thing, too. Your brain chemistry is like will not feel pleasure. Not even playing shows make you happy. Nothing. nothing. Yeah, nothing. And because he had also like done anything he could have dreamed of doing, he was doing, and still he didn't have joy. So that's got to be a terrible thing. And as a person, yeah. for me, like as a you know, I was a young person, and like I was, I, I was too much. I was too into hating myself to even like new things. Like I was like, I couldn't do it. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I like Nirvana. And when I saw that Kurt had died, I was like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, and then all of the fucking conspiracy shit comes out and being somebody yeah. who obviously doesn't know Kurt Cobain or you or Courtney Love or anybody, you know, you kind of like, well, it says the dose he took was blah, blah, blah. And you were so, so succinctly in the book, you were like, fuck that shit. I saw him use that much. He, he could, he could use that much. So like it puts that to rest for people who were not there. And I think it's important that you mention it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even um, acknowledge any of that when that, you know, people on the internet are always, you know, I'm like, God, it's just a, 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 a fucking fairy tale, that whole thing, you know, those, uh, the conspiracy stuff. And, of course, you know, people want to put make sense of it, you know, like they, like no, someone has to be blamed for this because, you know. Um, but, yeah, that was his choice, and he did that Another himself. Another crazy yeah. thing to me as a fan and an observer 
when you guys call the record, live through this, and Kurt dies and Kristen dies and you have to live through it, like what a terrible fucking thing. Like what a terribly synergistic thing that is. Yeah, and then I couldn't even, you know, make sense of that. It was like, what? And trying to stay clean through that because there's so much going on and... I knew that because I was clean, I, I like if I picked up, it was, you know, so it was like barely hanging on through that. And then then there's the what are we going to do thing, you know, dealing with that whole world. Um, and uh, the record comes out and there's that sort of eerie, you know, uh, you know, the title of the record and stuff. And then I just focused on trying to just do my simple thing, do my little paint job and go to meetings. <laughs> and then we started trying to, you know, find a bass player. And, um, you know, we found Melissa was, was amazing, but, and then it just, it felt good to play music. It did. It felt good to get back and start playing and focus forward and then just keep it simple and go to my meetings. And, and like, I was all about like, we uh, rehearsed to go to Reading and then I brought my big book and I was going to go to a meeting in London. And, you know, it was all like I was I had all like, you know, support group. And um, and I really wanted to do it. And and then, um, you know, we played the we went to Reading. We did that. We dealt with all that. Um, it didn't I didn't last very long, I have to say, being clean after that. When you're working yeah. the program. Right. And uh you know, surrender is such a big part of the program and, and doing the steps in those. Cause like one of the craziest things about your story is how many times you kind of pull yourself out of it and then you fall back in each time when you pulled yourself out, were you working steps? Were you feeling like maximum surrender? Like, like for me, like when I was using, I was just fucking, yeah. no, you weren't. Okay. No, no. Um, I mean, I can actually say that, like, from the beginning, like, I didn't, it was more about, um, it was not convenient to start using again, you know, and so I would, like, I know what I I wanted to, I have to say, I wanted to, you know, be all up in my big book and, like, feel that sort of, like, um, bright, you know, that sort of, like, freedom, happy, joyous, and And I I gave it, early on, I gave it my best, but um, it wasn't convenient to, you know, I was putting on a happy face, sober face, right? I wanted to, um, but I didn't truly believe that I was powerless. I knew, I, I, I kind of really didn't think about that. I always thought, mm, someday I'll be able to get this shit together and do it again. And when things got hard for me and I started to feel like there's so, like, what, it was such a volatile place to be in in my band to, try to be sober because I'm raw, like already sensitive. And then there's that insecurity of feeling like, am I playing okay? I'm in front of a billion people right now. And like fear and um, being in a band with, you know, Courtney wasn't, you know, like easy going when it came to like our shows and stuff. You know, like she would outwardly yell at Eric and, you know, like there was like, it was scary, you know? And I was like, I got to, um, it was it was hard for me. So I was afraid of a lot of stuff. And like, so um, for the relief was to get high. I'm like, okay, you know, now I feel like, so it was always like just to keep a, a sober face and like show up. And, um, and that, that was the, that was my, that's how it went for a while, for a long time. You know, I only got clean because 
um, I was going to, you know, lose my job or, you know, you better show up for this or, you know. It's, um, it's got to be so hard, though, like to be in not only a rock and roll band, not only a super popular rock and roll band, but a sort of like junky ethos rock and roll band from the junky capital playing through this whole junky business. Like who like can you think? I mean, like, I guess Anthony Kiedis got clean, you know, and toured. It must be so hard to be young and in a band as a, a heroin addict and get clean and be happy, joyous and free. Who did it? You know, like, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I, everybody else is still doing the thing they do. You know, like, I, you know, like we play our shows and like, you know, Cordy's still doing her thing. And, and, um, I, I think it was just, I just, it was like white knuckling out, you know, and it was just, you know, like the, the joy, like I was happy about playing. I loved playing. Like it was still, gave me that release I needed, but, um, it, you know, like just, this, I, I hate, I, I'm so grateful that I got to experience, um, you know, playing music and being in my, that band, you know, and, but also, um, it was tough, you know, there was tough, like you, you when you're strung out and you need to, um, go to fucking Europe to play some shows and you're like, well, the plane leaves tomorrow and I have put off getting, you know, those are the, that's the shit. It's the worst. It's like really, no one cared. Like at that point, it wasn't about, uh, it wasn't that 10, 11 year old Patty who wanted to be a rock and roll drummer as a dream. It was about, you know, Patty who needs to get clean to go to, you know, I'm not thinking about drums as a, you know, as a drummer and a professional and a craftsman and, a, you know, and the music and all the, you know, I'm thinking about, fuck, what, oh, should I smuggle this shit tomorrow? Or, I mean, that fucking sucks, that life. What was your main way to smuggle it? Um, well, I did, we did this show um, right at the very end and it was in this place called Tuk 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 in the Northern Territories. And it was a Bolson beer um, flew 500 contest winners out to the middle of the North Pole to see a secret show. They don't know who it is. And then they get there and they realize it's Metallica and Hole and um, and Veruca Salt. Sponge is a Canadian band. And I guess by law they're supposed to and no, but Nobody was excited band. to see Sponge, though. Except for Melissa Oftermauer. Okay. Who's Canadian. Right. Okay. So, um, so we're playing that show and so and we all fly to everybody meets in Seattle and I'm thoroughly strung out like to the worst. So here's, you know, like Metallica and then everybody's meeting at Seattle is the hub before we all fly. We all get on the same plane and I'm showing up and what I'd done spent the evening doing and my girlfriend who was along the going along too, she, um, was like taking black tar and then putting it in, um, like sealing it in these little bags. Um, and then I remember putting it into like a container of tiger bomb, like that's going to change the smell. Right. But sealing it. And then, um, and then on, I, I think I put it into like one of those Sony Walkman. I took it apart, put it in there. Like that's so creepy shit. Take a little tiny screwdriver, blah, 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 putting it in there, putting it back to put it in the suitcase. And then I took, you know, rigs, syringes, and then took apart this hair dryer and put it in there. Like, did this whole operation? It was crazy. And then packed it up, and then show up. And who are there's other people in this group that are clean and sober people, right? That I respect. 
and um as far as our, you know, and other bands and part of our com- record company and touring group. And so they're all there and they all know what's going on, you know. And, um, you know, we get on the plane, we fly, and, every, you know, it's like the rock and roll flight. So if this plane goes down, I don't think it, my name's going to go at the top of the newspaper clipping. It's going to be Lars Ulrich dies in a plane crash or whatever. But anyway, we get, we land, we, we had to do like this, we land, and then. Um, and they did this big the management did this big talk um, and about do not try to bring any you know illegal substances and you know it was directed at Courtney but I think they knew about me too right and so we're at the airport and I'm looking out the window and out come the dogs the dogs are coming out to do the sniff sniffs and I'm like I'm fucked it's over and they're gonna yeah for a hole and it's gonna be on my head I don't know nothing happened. I got through with it, but that I was so, I was so, um, scared and I was so high that I got sober from that fear, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I was like, fuck, this is not worth it. Um, so, you know, we get to the, we're out in the middle of this Inuit village in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and um, as soon as we get there, we unpack all our stuff and I'm like, you just want to cook my family, get, you know, high. And, it, you know, everybody knew. And then there's this video footage of us doing this autograph signing for all these people. And, like, there's, you know, Lars, and, and it goes down the line, and, you know, Louise and Nina, Courtney, and they're like, I'm sitting there, like, skinny, oh, you know, big parka, uh, just horrifying looking, you know? And I uh, play the show, and, you know, then right after Fly Home, and it's over, you know? Then everybody's like, now we take a break, and now we deal with the, what the fuck Caddy's up and doing here, you know? And then the phone call start, and everybody's like, well, we're going to arrange to, you know, do you want to get clean? We're going to set it up. And, you know, then it begins the whole, like, so many rehabs and detoxes and, um, you know, just to do that and then come home and then get high, like the night I got home from that, you know, and then act, you know, sober. We had a lot of time off because Courtney was always doing something, and we had to start writing that second record, third record, and literally third. Record. But anyway, it was a, a back and forth, tons of rehab, and then I would just go and do a detox at the hospital, medical detox. If we had to, like, there was one like right in the middle of, um, you know, I didn't think we were doing anything. I did this call, and it's like Courtney's in Memphis doing that People versus Larry Flint. And she has like a couple of days off and wants you guys to go out there and, um, you know, do demos at that Ardent Studios, that famous. And, um, and I was like, fuck, what am I get? Okay, so that's next week. So I check myself into a rehab and get clean and then, you know, and use medical like pills to get through, go show up for that. Super you know, uncomfortable. You never feel good. You're super uncomfortable yeah. for all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and thinking, do they know I'm skinny? Da, 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 da. Anyway, uh, and then, you know, go back home and then like, whew, okay. But there was always that fear where that phone call could come in the middle of this and I could be like, you know, you never know. Uh, um, and so we were all separated all across everywhere and like had to get focused doing this record and it was just like, um, I did. I didn't care, you know. I just wanted to um, 
stay high and then just exist. You know, it just felt good. That was where, that was where it was for celebrity skin, right? Yeah. And you're, and you're, and you're playing for that producer guy, Michael, whatever his name is. Uh, Yeah. I wrote Michael. his name down, Bainbridge or yeah. Bayman or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, and he, he gave you shit about the drum parts and they bring right. in the session drummer and you lose your right. mind about it. Right, right, right. Uh, and, you know, it would, it would, it just such a, you know, like an alcoholic thing to say, I feel like to say, well, it wasn't my fault. But, you know, part, I mean, like literally there was, I had a part, but he had a part and I feel like my band had a part and not to say that I haven't worked this out in my first step with resentments and da da da. But um you know that he had a, a reputation as a guy who uses his, you know, magic drummer guy, you know, rock and roll dude, brings him in. And I was and my band was like, we're not gonna do that. We were not like that, you know. And our management was like the rock and roll machine management. So they were they brought him in and anyway, and, and you know, Courtney and her co-signed that. They were like, cool, okay, we'll bring this guy in. And so we do pre-production and I had just gotten out of, an, out of another rehab in Southern California. Right. So I maybe like two weeks out. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and they'd been starting to work on songs and write songs with Billy Corgan. Right. Well, I'm, and so Cordy's sending me the cassettes to listen to while I'm in rehab and I get out and I'm like, wow, this is cool. You know, these are cool songs, but really cool. You know, Billy Corgan piano and, and it, and it was like, oh, this is kind of like taking on, um, we're moving in a cool musical way. And so we start playing and, um, I, I, you know, I just recently went back and listened to some of those demos because I was digitizing cassettes and I was like, ah, not so bad, Patty, actually. You know, well, they, my parts are cool. That dude then, had a vision. So, he had a pop right. vision. You know what I mean? Yeah. He wanted it to yeah. be squeaky clean. But like right. I was having I was having this conversation with a friend of mine who's in recovery who like made a mistake along the way, right? He did something while he was using and like like he never blamed himself for it. You know what I mean? And like yeah. and, and when he talked about it, I was like, but would you have done the same thing? had you not been an addict or an alcoholic and like in your situation, when I read that part of the book where you like lose your mind, you could have stayed in the band. You know what I mean? Like you could have stayed in the van. Oh my God. There's so many theaters. So many, I wish I would have in this situation, like going back in time, I wish I would have worked really fucking hard before that guy walked in the room. I wish I was like at my fucking peak. You know, I wish I had like worked hard and like worked out a bunch of parts. Our band didn't work like that though, you know? And so you know, anyway, you know, I feel like with that, that dude, I feel like with that dude, yeah, but I, I mean, I think it was a setup, but also I, there was a lot of stuff I could have done to show up, right. You know what I did. Right. So then, so we get into, um, you know, the studio and, and here we go, you're on Patty and, and you're like, uh, rolling, you know, the, the green light goes on, you know, like playing. And then it's like, do it again. And then it begins this whole thing where I'm like, not getting it and he starts to break me down and break me down and break me down it was like not good not good and and then finally i was like fuck um after three weeks i think he thought that i was gonna like just fuck it after two but then he got so like usually he wears people down and then they leave but i wasn't right so there's the meeting and they're like patty 
uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get a another drummer to come in, do your parts. It's not gonna be, um, you know, it's just gonna like we're not gonna tell anybody. We're just gonna do this and da da da. And I was like, fuck you guys, like, because I was like, I'm Patty, who comes from a place of like. I'm not gonna say like I don't want to sound like cool punk rock, but I'm like I didn't think our band was like kind of like that. You know what I mean? We weren't like, um, you know, we weren't like the the, you know, we weren't like um, I don't know foreigner or whatever. You know, we got for pro guys to come in. Anyway, oh, that I was betrayed and you know, how come you guys believe this guy, this little guy, little guy over here is gonna tell you? Um, and with the Dockers on Docker pants. Him. And then, so they, they, you know, it happened. And I remember just going and Courtney going, Pat, don't, you know, you have a choice. <laughs> don't fuck this up by, you know, don't go fucking downtown. Don't go downtown. You know what that means. And I was like, fuck you. And I left. Right. You know, and of course I did. And um, because it hurt so fucking bad, it hurt so bad that I couldn't, because that was the one thing that was like, um, it just I preserved, you know, I've done all these, you know, jump through hoops to like maintain my addiction and stuff. And like, and then finally, you know, I, I was clean, but two weeks clean, literally. Um, and it still happened. You know, they say the cliche, if you continue to do drugs and drink, you know, you're going to lose everything that's important to you. And I did, you know, I never thought I would. And, and, and there was still more I lost after that. No, I and, know. I know. That was just the opening. So, yeah, that was just, you know, the opening. And so, you know, the anger around that. And then, and then to, you know, then they bring in Mr. Rock guy and he comes in and like does it. And then it just is really squeaky clean the the record. And it's, it's cool, you know, for what they wanted it to do, you know, be like, like a Fleetwood Mac California record. Um, and well, that's, so, that's the other yeah, funny thing. I mean, it's like when we talk about, that wasn't the way, that's not the world I came from though. Was it? And then to find out later on in life that that's a thing that's happened a lot. Yeah. And I'm like, what? You know what? Peter Chris didn't play on the Unmasked record, you know, or whatever. And like a lot of got you know, Anton Figs, the go-to drummer, and like it's all a secret. Oh, and I can't. I didn't know. And I was like, wow. It's like all those, like when we're talking about Laurel Canyon, all those records, the biggest rock and roll records from that time, it was all like the Wrecking Crew. It was all like these bands. And you were like, but but you, yeah, exactly, who's amazing. But it's like, fuck that, this is my band. But I think it's also tweaked out with alcoholic thinking being... Because I already think I'm shitty. Right, you know, right. I'm a shitty drummer. You're telling that, you're, and I'm saying that all the time. You know, it's like I got to work harder. I'm not good enough. I'm gonna, so there's that. Um, you know, and then you know Dallas Taylor, the drummer of Crosby, Crosby Stills. Still he, he wrote a book that's amazing. And um, you know, like there's always the guys they bring in to do the thing. And um, I didn't, you know, first I didn't know how much that happened, and I could have handled it totally differently. I could have just went, okay. Yeah, I'll just, you know, ride this out. But I couldn't, I remember thinking when they, when I, you know, one of those things that I loved doing when I was a kid was like reading Modern Drummer magazine and like reading what the drummers talked about and stuff and um, and how they made their parts up and how they played. And I was like, how am I going to be able to do 
and talk about this and act as if I played that? No, those are my parts, but it wasn't me. And how could I like just talk like that? Just felt so. I was like so hurt by it, you know. Like um, it crushed your dream. Yeah. It crushed your dream. Yeah. And plus the whole I'm a girl drummer, you know, that thing came up too. I was like, fuck you, dude. Like he was about like not about like he brought a guy in to do it too. And I was like, wow. This goes against like oh our band's a feminist band and da da no, um, but yeah definitely I had a part in it. It could have been different. I have to I have to admit that. But um, and then you know to go just to say fuck it from there. And then I went off to crack heroin island. Yeah, dude. How much? How respond? How what role did it play? Did that episode play in the next? I mean, how long did you use after that? For years and years, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I went hard about it. And I, I just, like, went into a... And first they were like, you need to go... Um, they put me into, a, like, Hazelden rehab after that, so they were worried. Like, you're going to... You know, still in the band. Um, and that was, like, we did that. Like, recording was done in, like, the fall or something. Or Anyway, the following spring or summer they put me into rehab right and uh and at hazelden and i just went in there and did my 30 days and then they wanted me to stay they kind of used the jimmy chamberlain model like that's what jimmy from smashing pumpkins went into rehab and then he stayed at their sort of sober living thing and i was like fuck that i'm out of here i left it 30 days went home back to my apartment and like got on the phone got high first got on the phone i'm home ready to go where what are we doing and they were like um, well, um, you know, just hold off, you know, and then the next day I get a call and then my friends like, I've talked about this and there, um, before I get a call and a friend's like, how did you see, um, oh, what, what's going on with the band? I mean, did you see, uh, you, I, you know, you guys just did your first video and I was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you're in this, you, you guys did your first single. And I was like, no, I'm not in a video. What video? I'm all fucked up. And they're like, yeah, it's like. I go, what? You know, and then should I call? You know, like there's a, they made a, the first single and they got a new drummer, Samantha Maloney, great person, great drum drummer. And, you know, and I was like, what? And, they, you know, and I was so fucking enraged, you know, they moved on and we're like, fuck it. God is not gonna. Um, so they were saying what we're going to do is that she's going to play. And then when you're up and, you know, on your feet, well, you'll come back. And, and I was like, uh, uh-uh. Not doing it, and I went and I said, "Fuck you guys!" And then was like, "Fuck you guys! I want a million dollars!" I don't know, like just couple, you know, like this whole thing. like, "I want a million, you better, I'm gonna sue you." I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about, anything. And they, so they were like, uh, "Okay," <laughs> um, so I got a lawyer, and uh, and they, we just did a little settlement, like. Goodbye, Patty. Here, you know, give up your publishing or whatever. Yeah, you know, like ten cents on this, <laughs> and then we'll give you this little bit of money. And so it was just a little, tiny bit, and that was what I used with. I like, and that lasted six months. That was it. I went, you know, the settlement did. And but you lived, yeah, you yeah. lived like you were a millionaire in that six months. I did. You know, I did. I, and then I discovered crack in one of my most, you know, I went into another rehab where a girl there had done crack and, she, you know, we hooked up after. And then it was then there's that. Well, um, you, you write about it in such a brilliant way. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. 
I'm going to read it. Hold on for a second. Let me find this part of the book. Yeah, this is when you're basically living on the street. You're fucking doing whatever you have to do to survive. You called it A Day in the Life, Chapter 36. I never know what time it is, but gradually I'm coming to, and there's enough available light peeking through the tear and the tarp that I can find the shot I'd prepared just for this morning. That was probably only a couple hours ago. I don't sleep anymore. It's dangerous and takes away from the task at hand. But if I know it's possible, I might not out, usually after I've scored a comfortable amount after a long day's effort. I make sure to prep a new shot for myself to wake up. My right hand finds its way into the pocket of my jeans to find my wake-up shot. There's a reason they call it fixing. Fix my state of consciousness, please. Fix me in just one hit. Hit me. There's no pleasure in this first shot. This is just so I can stand up and move around. As things become clearer, I go over my schedule for the day and lay out my goals. Meet up with Jimmy, smoke crack, steal batteries from Kmart, and sell them to the guy who runs the bodega across from the park. Buy heroin, shoot heroin, nod off, come to, sell bags of drugs for a small profit, eat a sandwich from a convenience store, smoke cigarettes, run another hustle with Jimmy, smoke crack, give a disgusting slob a blowjob while vaguely annoyed the money goes to Jimmy, not to me. Argue with Jimmy, who placates me with a new hit of crack. This is around the time when I fix myself enough to crash out for an epic two hours, then prepare my coming around again shot for later. Ever hopeful that I'll feel it this time like I used to, back when I used to sprout wings. If I could just get back, get back, get back to that magical chemical formula that could fix everything, how could anyone call this life a failure? It's like, holy fucking shit, you know? Um, So basically, you went from this band to total street hustler. Yeah. Yeah, I lost everything. Barely hanging on with no money and then, you know, going downtown constantly to score. And then one day I was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to stay here. You know, I had nothing. So, um you know, eventually, you know, finding ways to um, get high because I, I could not. There wasn't a moment in the day that I wanted that I I I, I could not be completely. I couldn't. I didn't want to feel anything. I didn't want my head to start. You know, anything. I was such a. I was a completely different person than I was ever before, and I didn't want to know that person. I was a different person, and. Uh, and and also still angry too you know sometimes in my head the the anger would float back in oh oh about my band and like i'd like use that then you know you're angry you're like fuck you guys you know but then i was like you know fuck you guys i'm you know giving a guy a hand job for 20 you know like how's that (laughs) you know look at my life and that's where it got me and you know it's that cliche again where you know you continue to do this you, you you'll you Drink and use, you, you know, it's jails, institutions, or death, or and you lose it all, and um, you lose. It, and I did. I mean, literally, yeah, well, to the street. When when we hear in, in in twelve step that resentment is the number one offender, we're talking about yeah. this is the ultimate example of you're drinking the poison to kill the other person, only you're dying, right? Yeah, yeah, and also that that comfort that I think I definitely believe that. Um, my 
chemistry, my brain chemicals. Um, you know, I, I don't know, like everybody has their own views on this, but I think that um, I truly need to have a, like a, a outside help, like an um, a antidepressant to like, like, because I had anger issues early before I'd ever, you know, had anything. And I'm like, and I think also trauma. Um, and so your brain learns to deal with any, with these things with drugs. You know, I'm 12 years old. I haven't even, my frontal lobe's not even developed yet. And I learned how to deal with things with drugs. It just was, oh, okay, now I feel right. So, um, you know, I think that um, in sobriety, like it took a minute for me to sort of realize that I need to take a an and then I was like, okay, I feel okay, you know, like all right, I think I got to give yourself a chance, right? And like get that those and all of the, the serotonin and all the stuff right in your brain. Um, but yeah, back to that that life on the street was like um, so like so different. <laughs> I mean, like sometimes I feel like a brief second of um of you know where i had been you know and i think holy shit i was like i was at radio city music hall but not even this you know and then and that's all a ways to go from there to here corner of alvarado and and it was just mind-boggling but i i just uh that's what it you know i just i wanted to to stay high yeah, when that you, it. but that and that's the kind of I went hard. I that was my work. That was my life's work was to stay high. You know, you make it your job. Do you remember? I, I'm gonna, do you remember that like, switch in your head, like when you're in the street and and like you're like looking around and you're like, well, this is my life now. Do you recall that or or and like yeah, what and what was what was going on in your head? Yeah, um, I mean, there were like a few moments, like there's like moments where I'm in like some fucking dope house and somebody's like, you know, like, I don't know, just being like, um, nobody was kind to anybody. So you know, go in, you know, they get, get high of this dope house and somebody like walks over your feet and kicks you, you know? And it's like, you're treated like, you know, amongst each other in that it's like trash. So, you know, having a moment to be like, you know, somebody kicks me, <laughs> you know, you get hit. You know, you know, like, you know, that kind of stuff. And you're like allowing that in your life to happen because, you know, those were the moments where I was like, wow, you know, that's a, and then the moment I wrote about, I think when I was walking and I looked in one, one of the streets and there was this church and the doors were open and there was a drum kit inside and it was like some old drum kit. I think it was for the band that plays the church music and it was, um, and I saw it, and I was like, "Wow!" And I, I hadn't even thought about me and music and drums, and um, and it came, it came to me that minute, and I was like, "Wow!" That like I'm a drummer, and that was first. You know, it was before alcohol, it was before heroin or cocaine. It was before my band. It was like it was just me and that, and um, uh, it's. You know, I, I miss that. Just that. Just me and me and the drums, just playing. You know, and I rem I was reminded that's what I do. That's what I am. It was my whole life, and that was another thing about not being in my band was that's all I was. That was my life. Um, 
I had no other uh, concerns in the world. My, I, I had no balance. I was like, I'm Patty, the drummer in this band pool, you know? And it's like, there's got to be more. Like, I was like, I just, that's all. And so I had nothing when it was gone, you know? So. Right. You were just, you were just, I'm somebody that needs chemicals to feel okay. Yeah, that's what I was using to feel. um, Like yourself. Right. And all the things. And it really speaks to your ego, you know? And so then what? Um, that's what it is. That's what it is. Then you, you had made it, you know, you're this drummer and you're a very successful, famous drummer and it made you feel cool. And then you're out there and you're like, if I use, I'm still kind of that person. Like it's, I understand what you mean. It's, it's, I, I just kind of hit me in the face when you said that, um, that you're still you because you're doing this thing that is special. It's, and, and then also like the fucking, the chemistry of it that it actually fuels you that you need it to operate you know like i I mean you you told a story in that book about being by copping by macarthur park on foot and getting arrested i mean that's when i lived out there like i only i basically copped on foot every day and i would always cop like before people came out you know what i mean like i would leave my house i'd like i'd like get heroin before i went to the methadone clinic like i would get heroin at like six in the morning five in the morning if the sun hadn't come up yet i would feel particularly good about myself because it was so easy me too me too that that particular day though i mean i can't believe i'm making this sort of like the detail in that story was like um i was about to have this phone call about you know the settlement so i was like I gotta go. I'm, you know, I don't usually go at this time, but I'm gonna go. You know, but it, and then, you know, I also think about like my story is like sad, but it, there's I, I look back on some of the humorous moments along the way, and like that day, I'm walking around downtown, like in this certain area is a, it's a, it's primarily Hispanic, and um, I'm wearing fucking pajamas, and I'm the whitest. I'm fucking. I'm a redhead. I'm white white girl trying to you know like and i'm not being stealthy about anything because i need to get fucking dope now right I'm like on the worst street trying to you know and um you know of course they spotted me <laughs> you know they're like well you come right with us you know and i was like fuck you're like what i didn't blend you know? in i didn't blend in yeah yeah i'm not blending in <laughs> yeah it felt so, like so white and um so yeah there was like those those moments along the way and the fact that when i was in hole and i was shooting dope and i was strung out um that i was vegan and i would like be like make that a thing like i'm vegan but you know and i uh, i don't want to eat meat because it's not good for your body and it's un- un- bad unethical to the animal but then i'm going to shoot heroin too <laughs> like what kind of thinking is that yeah it's it's classic <laughs> Um, right. So what brought you back? Because you went to the, the biggest bottoms, you know, bottom after bottom after bottom. Like you can be a, a yeah. great a great story of just there is no bottom. You know what I mean? So like in the end, I mean, you also went to treatment after treatment after treatment. And eventually, I think it was because of that, uh, the musician group, right? Music. Yeah, MAP, Musician's Assistance Program. And they sent me to rehab three times and they're not supposed to send somebody there. Like, I think they might be able to do it twice or something, but they kind of pulled some strings. A friend helped and they sent me to rehab, um, for the last time, which was in 2005. Um, and the reason, you know, like, why did it work that time? You know? And I, I can't say that there was like a big 
uh, epiphany or anything. It was, I had nothing, literally nothing. And I showed up there, a friend helped me and get there. And um, yeah, I had to surrender because I had I like basically had nothing and no one and everybody had gone. And um, so, you know, I started, I did, you know, 30 days and then I went into sober living and I lived in sober living for like six months. I did it and they did, what it, why, the difference, you know, they would say, well, what was different that you have to do something different to get clean? I feel like what did, was, what I did differently was I went into sober living for the first time, you know, and I stayed and I wanted to be clean and sober. I wanted to try it. I did believe in the first, I am powerless. I get it. I finally get it. <laughs> that's the funniest part. Cause you got yeah. taken to the, I mean like, that's the funniest thing about all of this. Like, like I, I fucked up my life over and over and over and over again. And I was not willing to say that. And I was not willing to give it up. But then one day something changes and like, it's too bad that we can't bottle that and share it with our friends and give it to people who are struggling. But that's why the rehab industry is totally fucked up because it, it just happens. Right. It, yeah. You know. yeah. And so many people and even like parents of, you know, will write after reading the book and, you know, my, my kid is, uh, you know, is doing Oxycontin or all that. And they're like, what did you do? You know, and how did you do it? And I'm like, I can't, you know, there isn't a thing, you know, it's just, uh, you can't buy it. You can't, you know, it just, it was a, I just had to try so hard to make it work so many different ways. And I'm finally convinced that when I pick up a drink or a drug, I can't stop, you know? And so I'm safe as long as I don't pick up the first one. And then, then now begins sorting your shit out sober. Like there's a lot of shit in, you know, now we begin the work and I, ugh, you know, it's so daunting. I mean, I, I don't want to like, you know, scare anyone or anything, but like, then you begin to work on, um, what's going on in there, you know, like what's why. And, um, I built, I built self-esteem by doing things like getting a job and showing up, and, you know, like the first paycheck I got, I didn't spend it on dope. I went to the bank and my sponsor helped me open a bank account and then start, you know, and those were the things It was like, I took the bus to work, you know, and it's like, these are cliches to those early stories about how you do, you know, but they, you know, you do the dishes and sober living, you make it, it, it's a, it works, you know, I keep it simple. And then I felt good about being good at my job when I got my first day job, which was working at a dog daycare center. And like, the, you know, the boss was like, you know, you're really good with dogs, you know? And then I was like, wow, I'm good at something. So fucking good. You know, I'm like, you know what? You're good at it. And I can depend on you, Patty. So I'm going to make you the manager. I'm going to give you a key to the shop, you know? And then I'm like, holy shit, I have a key. Someone trusts me to open up their business. You know, it's that stuff. And then, I start feeling good about myself and like, ah, I'm okay. You know, like that's real. It's not about being the drummer and whole, you know, no, no one knew that. I don't tell anybody. And, you know, I don't say anything unless, you know, like eventually someone went, Hey, Josh just got hired. And he said that you were in a band, you know, or in the, like, yeah, you know, and then what are you doing here? And that's like, 
Yeah. So he said, yeah. It's a long story, my friend. Yeah. The, yeah. My, my, one of my favorite things in the book is like when you, after you're out in the street and you go back to Courtney and you, you start playing with her and she says, well, did anybody, did anybody recognize you? Like, uh-huh. I think that's so classic. Yeah. yeah. And you were, you were selling, I mean, there was a while that you were the middleman, right? And you were selling. Yeah. Yes. And no, I mean, it was like small time. Like, you know, you go and, um, of course. You, you know, what I would do is like try to run some where I buy some and like I get, you know, my my bet for this much. And then I would go and charge some, you know, stupid kid 20 bucks for it when it, I bought it for five right. or whatever. Of like course. That. We had to do that. Yeah. I did the same stuff. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is that you're in and you're working in dog daycare or you're just getting sober and you're just getting yeah. some freedom and responsibility. How easy would it have been to fuck it all up? You know, like that. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like when I first got clean, I knew that I could fuck it up at any second and it's all gone. And, the, and yeah. I was, I just didn't want to lose it. Like, do you remember the beginning? Like, the fear of, of not wanting to fuck up what you finally earned. Yeah. I didn't want to fuck it up. But then I also, I think, um, I was really scared too. that. So I, besides, um, you know, the job that I had to show up at, I built these little safety nets. And I think, I don't know, like, like I, you know, I got a girlfriend right away and like we lived together and like, I wanted that to work too. And so that was a safety net like that being, you know, it might not be recovering. Like I, I used, I set up my world in a way where, um, you know, she was important to me and I didn't want to lose that. So, you know, like there's those little kind of like, like I would put up little, um, like speed bumps along the way, like to, or little, you know, gates just to ensure that I wouldn't, you know, and, um, and, and I stayed away from drums for a while because it was like a kind of a sensitive thing. And I tried to, to be really, to do things, uh, be, just be kind of kind to myself and just be a worker among workers. Right? And, totally. Totally. Um, it's an amazing so, story. It's an amazing, amazing story. Um, and it seems like, I don't know, you know, I don't know Courtney personally. It seems like she's, uh, in a, working a program and stuff. And like, I reached out to her on Instagram, uh, to come uh-huh. on the show and she was kind of like responding to me to come on the show. And then she didn't respond. Mm-hmm. And I like, like I, I get relentless with people to get them to come on the show. Cause I have mental problems with it. And I think I really, I think I really offended her. Are you still in touch with her? Yeah, I mean, we go through, um, all of a sudden there'll be like a group text, me, her, and Melissa, and then, you know, um, and, and it'll go for a while, and then it'll be quiet for a while, and it'll, you know, and if so, but, like, um, yeah, so, like, it's always off and on, and I'll, like, something will come up, like, when I did, a, recently I did digitize all, a lot of whole demos and stuff, and some stuff came up that was, like, some cool ideas, or a funny song that, Courtney wrote that you know and so you know I sent it to her and um you know and then so like it's it, that'll you know that's how we talk but um she's in London and and you know she seems um happy which is you know that makes me think she's doing good you know of course it's a great so. thing I mean I think it's awesome that you guys have some sort of connection still and like you never know if you could just play something for fun. I mean, the world is so different. You guys also got fortunate in that music was like ending when you guys hit it. 
like music was like it's crazy that rock and roll imploded like that you were one of the last you know dinosaurs to walk the earth kind of thing like isn't it crazy Uh, when when it was organic right yeah with electric guitars it's wild (laughs) because like because i'm sure when you guys were starting out you weren't thinking that this system would ever stop and like no and, and it's like oh my god what a crazy world um, yeah, you never know what's next, you know, like, what is music going to be, you know, created out of, you know, how does it, you know, you know who would have thought that it would be stream, who, yeah. It's nuts. All that is, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I have to tell you um, that it was an honor to, to get you to come on the show, and I love talking to you, and I love to hear your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan and a listener, so right thanks on. for having me on the show. Um Cool. So uh, I always say this at the end of the interview, but my, my, I have this guy who does the show with me now, this guy, Ray, and he always tells me that it's creepy. But I always say this, if there's anything I can ever do for you, please let me know. And I mean yeah. it. Like if you're building a podcast and I can be of service, please let me know. I, would, I will. Yeah. I, I'm, that's the stuff right now that like is making me excited. It's like trying new stuff like a podcast, and, you know just writing music and stuff and just, I, I love and, and the reaching idea. out to friends. I love the idea of the one with you and your brother. I think that's, yeah, okay. I Good. think you should do it cause it'll be fun and you get to be with your brother too. I know who's, he's the funniest. I'm like, he and I, it's like, he's the funniest and it's comfortable. So I think it'll be a good thing and funny. Right on Patty. Thank you so much for your yeah. time. Sorry. I went so long. Yeah. yeah the story's no, no, so no. good though. You know, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Right on. Have a beautiful day. You know, Patty Schemmel is somebody that, you know, there's a woman in the Dopey Nation, the great Karina Fleming. And Karina Fleming organized me buying that gear shit. And she always kept saying, you know, like with the Dopey Nation raised a bunch of money for me to buy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I still haven't bought. But I'm I'm honing in on what to buy because I want it to be the right thing. Yeah. But it was Karina Fleming who suggested Patty Schemmel. Oh, really? And... I didn't really think about it. I don't even know how, what made me write her, but, um, but I did. And when she said yes, I ordered her book and I wrote, I'm not going to interview you until I read the book. And the book was just, it was, it's such a gnarly fucking memoir. I want to read the book now because I read their book reviews last night and, and I listened to the interview last night and I was like, this is really interesting. And she sounds like a really cool, nice person who went through all this shit and like was really down and out. Really down and out. And like went from, like she said, Radio City hit one day and the next week she's like on the street. On the street for real. Like, I don't know. I, I think she's a, an amazing example of how recovery can actually work. Yeah, and, and bounce back. And like she said, like parents are like, how do I make my kid do this? And she's like, I can't answer that. Exactly. And just like dopey, as, they, as the youth say, dopey as fuck, this and, chick. And, you know, I knew of Hole, I knew of Courtney Love. I didn't... I knew that one of them died, but I didn't know that much about Patty Schimmel. Right. No, I didn't know anything about anything. And I thought they were all on heroin. It turns out only like... Well, the, no, the three Eric of them was, were on. Eric was not. Eric wasn't, and Melissa wasn't. Right, right. But, but the other Kristen three... and Patty and, and Courtney, Courtney yeah. were. But uh, it is... Can you, you imagine know. touring with a band with three junkies being the one that's not a junkie? Well, can you imagine touring in a band with Courtney Love and no. Courtney Love 
keeps her shit together better than you. Yeah, exactly. It's just like Ivan Neville and Keith Richards. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting, but that's where that's dopey, right? That's the it's the bottom bottom of the barrel. And uh, she's a great inspiration. Was a great guest. And uh, she said she's a listener of the show. Amazing. She I'm, she said she's a great Ray Brown fan too. She did not say she that. She did. They said she was going to write a review about you. Um, so I want to tell you a quick story about my life. Okay. Yeah. The other day, it was Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, we were taking Susan to her dance class, and, and Linda had an emergency doctor's appointment, so I had to take uh, Nora to, or Susan to the dance class, and since Nora wasn't in school because it was Thanksgiving, I had to take Nora as well. And um, I don't know, it's like 20 minutes before the day. We, it takes 10 minutes to get there, so 20 minutes, I'm still in my pajamas, and then at 10 minutes, I put on my pants and my sweatshirt... And I go outside, and Nora looks at me, and, and I look at myself, and I said, I look kind of dirty, you know? <laughs> and Nora said, Daddy, you look like a homeless person. You, you have to go change. Do you ever leave the house in the car in your pajamas? Sometimes. But so <laughs> she says, you have to go change. And I said, there's no time. I can't change. And I, and I had a bottle of water, so I'm pouring it like on the stains on the, <laughs> the stains on my sweatshirt and on my jeans, and I'm, I'm rubbing them, You're them out. You're rubbing the dirt yeah, in. Yeah, and, uh, or out or whatever. A lot of it was toothpaste and stuff. Oh. But um, as I'm driving there, I'm feeling, and my shoes were these old, disgusting fucking shoes, and I'm thinking to myself, why do I do this? Like, I always do that. I, we're disgusting. Why am I not in, like, chinos and, like, a polo shirt? No, and I thought to myself that I, I love how bums look on the street. I look at bums, and I'm like, where'd you get that? You know, whereas opposed to, like... If <laughs> what are I, you wearing? Yeah, who are you wearing? <laughs> who are you wearing? <laughs> um, whereas if I, I, I see somebody wearing nice, clean clothes, I'm like, what's this guy got to prove? And isn't that crazy? Oh, that's where that's coming well, from? no, no, no. It's just, like... I don't put on, I, I like have some fucking terrible self-esteem problem that I don't. I don't deserve to wear nice clothes. I don't, I feel like if I, if I wear nice clothes, I'm trying to prove something. Isn't that, like, it's not even that. It's like some weird thing about it. Well, there is a thing in AA of like, you know, dress, make your bed, like, and that kind of translates to like make your outfit. Give me a break. I fucking live in COVID look the, land. Look at this fucking beard. I know. So how can you give me advice? You look like you fucking just woke up on 33rd Street. I look like a bum. Um, but I think that's why I relate to you so well. <laughs> um, you want to do voicemail or email? Whatever. No. You okay, do- voicemail. Okay. We got this voicemail today. So here we go. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dopey Nation. Uh, got a dopey story for you guys, which I think is uh, quite hilarious. Uh, my wife would beg to differ, but uh, anyway, here goes. Uh, so this was uh, in a period of my life when I was experimenting with uh, research chemicals, uh, namely uh, a chemical called 3-HOPCP, which is a highly, highly potent dissociative, which is uh, chemically related to PCP. So uh, this happened uh, one night when I was being a complete idiot. Uh, I decided I was going to take a bath, uh, I know, really stupid, and uh, relax with one of my favorite albums and uh, a little bit of uh, 3HOPCP. So I filled the bathtub, put on my album. I'm in the bathtub. I take a small three milligram dose, okay? And I'm feeling good. I'm feeling relaxed. I'm, I'm high. I'm having a good time. 
Uh, I probably waited about 15, 20 minutes, um, again, really stupid, before I took another three milligram dose. Now, anybody that knows anything about this substance knows that um, uh, habitual redosing can have a cumulative effect, which can eventually lead to psychosis. Okay, very bad, very, very bad. Uh, so again, I was being an idiot and I took that second dose before I had felt the peak effects of the first dose. Okay. Um, and, and then eventually somewhere along the lines, I, I don't remember this specifically because my memory gets a little hazy at this point, but I probably took another three milligram dose. Um, which again, very bad. Now, luckily, thank God, I was still coherent enough that when my album finished, uh, I was able to get out of the bathtub, drain the bath water, and start getting dressed. Um, now, I managed to get my boxers on and one sock before inevitably I slipped into first psychosis and then into a state of unconsciousness and ended up on the bathroom floor. Now, maybe an hour goes by, an hour and a half, and my roommate, uh, whose bathroom I was in, by the way, uh, has to pee. So he attempts to open the door, which, again, thank God we don't have a lock on the bathroom door. Uh, he tries to open the door, and it's not opening because I uh, incidentally was up against the door. So he had to push open the door uh, and found me inside on the floor passed out now he was able to rouse me out of my unconscious state and of course i was completely incoherent at this point and um i this is the point where i start to regain memory but um they were trying to and, and my wife's there him and my wife are, are freaking out they're about to call the ambulance they're like telling they're like asking me like what the fuck what the fuck are you okay are you okay and i'm like me at the at the time I am convinced, convinced that I am creating the universe, um, that I'm that I'm currently creating the universe that I'm in, and I was convinced that I could manipulate it. And and while they're sitting here being like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I'm like, "I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine." Like, look at this. And I start waving my hand around. And what I was trying to do was uh, use my telekinesis to move the objects behind them. And, and, you know, and my, I was trying to rationalize things because I was trying to be like, I'm, I want to prove to you guys that I'm okay. And that I can, in fact, manipulate the universe by moving this shit, which of course it, it didn't work. And in which case I realized, oh, I fucked up. And now here I am in the kitchen with my boxers on and one sock. And it's, I start to like realize, oh my God, like I fucked up bad, and these guys are freaking out because they don't know what the fuck is going on. Eventually, they manage to get me uh, into bed, and slowly I start coming back to reality. Uh, thankfully, things turned out okay, but I uh, learned a valuable lesson that day and uh, thought I would share that with you guys. Hopefully, um, hopefully uh, that's a warning to people out there that might... Uh, who might consider uh, messing around with these types of chemicals. Uh, anyway, uh, if this ends up on the show, awesome. Uh, doodle for Chris. So I'm not going to say his last name, but his first name was Brandon. And uh, research chemical stories, we can't get enough of them. That was crazy. And and I, I usually, when I hear these kind of crazy drug stories, I'm like, I don't want to take that, but I kind of wanted to take that one. Of like creating the universe and then like telekinetically moving things around. That sounds awesome. 
It's a it's a classic Chris kind of story. If you only take the two doses, don't take that third dose, which I think that was the moral of his story. It's also like a classic. Um, that's like Cormac, you know, the great Cormac. He was a big research chemical guy, disassociative guy. I also like that he was like wearing boxers in one sock. I'm like, I think this guy's hot. That's all you ever get from these stories. <laughs> but I thought these poor roommates of, of everybody in the Dopey Nation that have to deal with shit. Well, I mean, to deal with somebody who's on drugs is not an easy thing roommates to deal with. Roommates and girlfriends. But the other thing that I took away from this voicemail is that Brandon's a great storyteller, and the new sweet spot for voicemails is five minutes. Because that was less than five minutes, and it, it just it entertained. It flew by. It flew by. It was great. So Dopey Nation, send in five-minute stories to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Make it short. Make it dopey. Make it funny. Listen to the Brandon voicemail and model yours after that. There's been a few that we've played lately that have been really, really, really good. Um, I wanted to read an email from Johnny Socket, the plug's plug, but we're not going to. We're going to save it because... How did the... What is the word plug? Where did that come from? It's like the it connects you to the juice. Oh, okay. It's annoying. I, I don't know all those drug that. turns. That I just like Johnny Socket, the plug's plug. I get a kick out of that. You know what? Should I just read it because I brought yeah, it Yeah, go ahead. Read it. Fucking Johnny Socket is a hardcore um, Dopey Nation member. He is uh, He's a great... I mean, everybody who contributes to the Dopey Nation, uh, to the Dopey Podcast, is just... I'm incredibly grateful for you guys because it makes it makes the show so much better. So here we go. He says, hey, Dave, possibly Ray and the Dopey Nation. It's Josh from Florida, a.k.a. Johnny Saki, a.k.a. The Plugs Plug. <laughs> First off, before the story, I just wanted to share I got my two-month chip on the 27th after having about a two-month relapse on heroin and some research chemical benzos I ordered from China that ended up putting me in the hospital. So now I've been attending meetings for the first time. I was going to AA meetings for two months, but just didn't feel like I was getting what I needed from them and didn't fully connect as I'm not really into alcohol. So I found a great NA meeting last night, and I'm actually excited to continue going to that meeting, finding a sponsor, and working the steps. And anyways, now on to the dopey. Um, So I used to cook meth, the shake-and-bake kind, not crystal. So it kind of looked like crack or even a piece of cheese after being squeezed and pressed out. People were all... uh, Anyways, I kind of turned my home, my mother's home, from the other stories, into somewhat of a flop house. I think he's the guy that you... That guy you were talking about. What? The old crouching tiger hidden crackhead? Yeah, I think that's him. Um, I have a terrible memory, so I'm sorry, Johnny. If I, I, write me and let me know if that's you, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Crackhead. Um, but I think it is. Anyways, I kind of turned my home, my mother's home, uh, from the other stories into somewhat of a flop house. People were always staying there from time to time. Well, some of my closer friends would just come and go as they please and even do business or whatever in my room while I was sleeping. Uh, one day I woke up to my friend who sold heroin and Dilaudid in my bathroom doing a shot or bagging up his dope or something. Um, once he noticed I woke up, he told me that he had set up a sale for me. Me knowing I didn't have any meth at the time caused me to be confused, and I was like, sale of what? He said, some of this go fast. That's what we called the meth. On this plate in your closet. <laughs> in all fairness, I did leave meth out on the plate a lot of the time. So again, knowing I didn't have any left over at the moment, I got up to take a look. 
And after seeing what he was talking about, I LOL'd and told him that that's a piece of Swiss cheese that fell off the sandwich <laughs> I had earlier. It had hardened up from sitting out for a while. He said, well, this girl is on the way over and we need to sell it to her so we can get a little bit of money. I agreed. And when she came over, she didn't even question it. <laughs> she put it on her spoon, but started no. to complain that it wouldn't break down. So I made up some excuse about how you have to do it this way or the other, and she proceeded and proceeded to do it for her. I managed to break it down for her in the spoon and water. Oh my god! She and shot. drew it up for her. Oh. She shot it and said a bunch of lies how she was fucked up, and we got our money from her. With the money, we went and bought more supplies to cook up a real batch. Uh, L-M-A-O, which I think is laugh my ass off. I'll never forget it. Junkie stunts. Ha, ha, ha. Sorry for the long email, but it makes me feel great to hear it on the show, as it always does. Thanks, Dave. SSDN and fucking toodles for Chris. I love that story. Fucking Johnny Socket always comes through. If that is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Crackhead, I, once again, I feel sorry for his mom. Oh, my God. This poor woman. But imagine you're the girl who's shooting up the cheese. How could you get high off a of cheese? You don't. You don't get high off the cheese. Um, but the, the thing that, you know, and, and we're going to be done with the show. These shows get longer and longer and longer. Let's go. Um, but I want to say something about, first of all, I want to thank everyone in the Adobe Nation, Facebook administrators, Greg Cormack, Sam for his tireless effort, fucking Misty for putting in work, everybody that puts in work, fucking Kira. It was just Kira's birthday. Oh, yeah. Happy so happy birthday, birthday to Kira. Don fucking selling dopey ads like a fucking crackhead sells cheese for real. Uh, so thank you I, to everybody who's getting it the, done. The whole way down, I'm chatting with Artie from Queensland, and I'm like, oh, fuck, Dave's computer's broke. I'm going to have to deal with this. So thank you, Artie, for keeping me company on that ride. Who? Artie from Queensland. Who's Artie from Queensland? He's this dude in Australia that we're going to stay with on the Dopey World Tour. He invited us. So you... you you fucking tell Artie that you don't want to deal with me when we do the show. I told him Dave's computer is broken and I'm like dreading getting there. I think that you want to have sex with Artie's from Queensland. No, I'm, I don't even know him. So what? Who do you have to know to want to have <laughs> sex with them? Anyway, thank you, Ray. Did you have a good time? It's fun. We're not done yet. We're done. We're done with the show. We're done with the show. Fucking... Oh, big up to the Dopey Zoom community. They're doing 24 hours of Dopey Zooms right now. Oh, yeah. Which is raging as we speak. I think I'm going to jump on there late tonight. Well, they're going to they're gonna be done tonight, um, but the show will come out before they're done. And then done. tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow is the Dopey Patreon Zoom. Yeah. Like, this has been the, the, dopiest, with, the dopiest sober week of my life because it's fucking <laughs> hours and hours of Dopey. And if then- you guys are listening to... We did... Last week with Slane, fucking Larry Ratso Sloman on the Patreon, fucking bonus episode with Steve Gorman, and now this. If you listen to all this this week, send me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Somebody wrote to me, and they're like, hey, that was a great interview with Steve Gorman. I'm like, who's Steve Gorman? (laughs) It's amazing. Anyway, yes, and DopeyCon 2 is coming, and if it's, uh, I mean, the work I'm putting into it is like retarded, Excuse me for using the word retarded, but it's 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 learning challenged. It's it's something. There's something wrong with the amount of. Have you been wearing a mask this whole time? I've I've had it on my chin and I put it back up because we're going outside. Not immediately. And Alan is right there. 
Anyway, DopeyCon 2 is coming December 9th, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on YouTube. Who knows how long it'll be there. Get ready. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Thank you.